Hello. Welcome to another episode of Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. If this is the first episode that you're listening to, welcome. If you've listened to our previous episodes, thank you very much. You can find Capital Musings on iTunes, Spotify, and also on our platform at Captivate FM, as well as on our website, uncdf.org. I am here today, and just a bit of a digression, the previous episodes have involved fantastic practitioners who are doing the work of economic development in the field for UNCDF. They've all been people who have work and carry the mission of UNCDF every day in their work and doing it, by the way, in the LDCs, the least developed countries, which are, of course, the toughest market. Today, we are happy to announce our first external guest. This is the first guest we have on the show who is not an employee of UNCDF, or for that matter, the United Nations, but I couldn't think of a better guest to provide for that opportunity and for that honor than Daron Asamaglu, someone who, frankly, from a personal standpoint, is an author along with James Robinson, who I had read when I was studying international law and international economics at NYU. Asamaglu and Johnson in this field are true thought leaders and titans in the area of economics, political economics, development economics, and I think their thought leadership in the context of how economics drives the development of state capacity has not only been integral in terms of a modern understanding of political economics, but as we look towards the SDGs, I think that type of understanding is going to be critical to determine what is the best way that we are going to be able to achieve sustainable development. So as I mentioned, we have Professor Asamaglu here today. Darun Asamaglu is the Elizabeth and James Killian Professor of Economics at MIT. In 2005, he received the John Bates Clark Medal given to economists under age 40, judged to have made the most significant contribution to economic thought and knowledge. In 2012, he was awarded the Erwin Pline Nemers Prize in Economics for work of lasting significance. And in 2016, he received the BBVA Frontiers of Knowledge Award in Economics, Finance, and Management for his lifetime contributions. Professor Asamaglu Daron, thank you so much for your time today. David, thank you. It's uh, great to be on the program. Appreciate it very much. We are going to basically focus extensively on a particular work and that is your most recent work, although Why Nations Fail has become absolute required reading for anyone involved in the international space. But we're going to focus on a subsequent book that is equally, at least in my view, of equal import and equal achievement. That book is The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty. And besides being a fantastic platform for our conversation today, I do have to congratulate you at the top. It's a tremendous book, not just in terms of the thinking that you're presenting into the public thought leadership space, but just the amount of research. And let me just say quickly to the audience, it's a tremendous book. I dare say there will be few books out there that can tie a narrative of state capacity and development that involves whether it's from Italy during Florentine time to China to India to, frankly, Ferguson, Mississippi, which, as an American citizen, I found to be a really compelling read in terms of applying this context of state capacity and development to a very uh, harrowing episode that we had in American history. So it's a tremendous, tremendous achievement. So let me start off by saying congratulations. Thank you. That's you. so nice of you to say. It, Thank it's, you. It's easy because it's true. 
the title of the book is The Narrow Corridor, and obviously we'd love to hear you unpack The Narrow Corridor, but I'd like to do it a bit, probably not as directly or as linearly as you might have experienced with other interviews, because there's a correlated concept to The Narrow Corridor that I found really fascinating, and it's the Red Queen Effect. So to the extent that you can actually start by talking about the Red Queen Effect and how that can determine where a state exists in the context of being inside the narrow corridor or outside, I'd love for you to start there, if that's okay. Well, thank you for asking that. Actually, you know, the Red Queen effect is the heart of the book. It's not a secondary narrative. And the key is, you know, what we're trying to capture with both the image of the narrow corridor and the Red Queen is that you really need this synergistic but very difficult relationship between state and society. You know, you need states, states with capacity and ability to actually change things, implement policies, resist certain demands, as well as, you know, expertise. But that's not enough. And in fact, it's not even feasible unless society is equal to the state and holds its own in terms of its autonomy, in terms of its insistence on certain things, in terms of its ability to resist certain impositions by the state. And that creates this delicate dance between state and society. And the Red Queen is supposed to capture that both in its static form and in its dynamic form. And the reference, of course, is Alice in Wonderland, uh, when the Red Queen says, uh, in this land it takes all the running can do just to stay in your place. So that captures this dynamic between state and society. Because the uh, modernization process, which you know many social scientists have eulogized, it's really a very difficult process. The world becomes much more threatening, much more complex, much bigger risks, much greater disruptions. And throughout, what you see is that the state needs to shoulder a greater burden at every turn both in terms of regulation, in terms of support for certain types of activities, in terms of social insurance, in terms of much more complex legal issues that it has to get engaged in in dispute resolution and such. And the Red Queen effect is that society has to keep on running together with the state, and the state has to keep on running with society so that that balance between the two is maintained, because if that balance isn't maintained, then you leave the corridor and you go either towards you know, a completely weak prostate, weak capacity state, or towards a despotic state. Now, to dive deeper, in terms of the specific language used in the book, when you talk about what you've just outlined are, if I'm not mistaken, and tell me if I am, the absent Leviathan, uh, Leviathan, and the mm-hmm. despotic Leviathan. And Absolutely. But in between, in the narrow corridor, again, if I'm not mistaken, is the shackled Leviathan. So what entails a shackled Leviathan? You know, that terminology we introduce starting from Thomas Hobbes' classic, sure. Leviathan. At some level, not every reader would be familiar with Thomas Hobbes, mm-hmm. but his influence is so pervasive. Really, everything we do in political philosophy, political science, but much more importantly, in the statecraft of international relations, is really sort of building on Thomas Hobbes. You know, this view of you need these strong states capable of doing things, and the sovereign, regardless of how he or she came to power, 
deserving our respect and everything revolving around the wishes and the capabilities of the sovereign, all of those really flow from Thomas Hobbes. But, you know, this influence that Hobbes has really, at some level, has also blindsided us. You know, Thomas Hobbes, writing in the midst of the English Civil War, had a very positive view of state power and a somewhat negative view of what would happen if the state was not very powerful. But one important implication of that is he really approached the problem from a state-centric point of view. And what we try to argue with historical examples and contemporary examples is really when you have the type of state that Hobbes imagined, it would not bring what he thought it would bring would be much more despotic without the ability of society to shackle the Leviathan. You would end up with despotism where the most important aspect of despotism is the unwillingness and inability to some extent of states and bureaucrats to listen to society. And the really important point there is that in some sense, even those who departed from Thomas Hobbes, like Montesquieu and Madison, really sort of ended up with what we would view as Hobbesian solutions to the problem. You know, you would write constitutions, you create checks and balances, you would have other elites, other enlightened people decide what the state ruler should or should not do. But the perspective that we develop is really that you need that Leviathan to be shackled in a much more radical way. And the shackling is not a constitution. The constitution cannot do the shackling. It's not another elite. It's not some sort of imposed checks and balances, but it's really society's mobilization. It's the regular people who get involved in the dirty business of politics and have enough power to say no, and have enough power to revolt or go to the polls and have their voices heard. Right. And now when I think of a shackled Leviathan, and again, the state existing within that narrow corridor, it also speaks to some semblance of capacity on the part of the state. And just generally, the concept of capacity is something that I think to a large extent can be quite overlooked. And just by way of background, for UNCDF, capacity is a major part of our mission because yeah. our core mission or one of our core missions is building up local capacity particularly because our view is that when you're looking at service delivery and sustainable development, you need a robust local government to provide, not just to provide the services, but they're able to convene the stakeholders to make the process democratic, and they know local needs on the ground. So capacity is, particularly from our organization, we understand capacity significantly, but I almost want to start at a very 30,000-foot level, just discuss generally the importance of capacity because it becomes such a differentiator when you look at all of the case studies in this book. So just from a general standpoint, what is the importance of capacity? And then if you want to outline a couple of examples of where capacity has, has created functioning shackled leviathans and where the lack of capacity led to the opposite. Let me actually do that and also sure. uh, in the process try to emphasize why it's so hard to build capacity. Uh, great. I mean, at some uh, basic level, capacity is very straightforward. You know, you have some objectives as in any organization or as an individual, and the capacity is, do you have the ability to actually achieve those objectives? And it's easy to talk of what states want. 
You would want more power. You would want more revenues. You would want everything to be the way that you want. But to actually get there is very difficult. Regulation is a very difficult thing. You know, how do you actually understand economic activity? How do you actually shepherd it in one direction versus another? Dispute resolution is another very difficult thing. You know, the way that states, local states, uh, centralized states would dispute resolution is through having a judicial system. But, you know, how do you communicate the right standards? How do you keep your judges accountable, but at the same time also responsive to the local needs? So at every stage, every step, you have this issue of actually can we do this capacity thing? And the story of the state institutions over the last 500 years, for example, everywhere around the world, including Western Europe, is really this process of capacity building. But the key thing where the book comes in is that, of course, we are by no means the first ones to emphasize the importance of capacity, but many scholars and commentators would view capacity building as an engineering problem. You need to have the right aspects of bureaucracy. You need to have expertise. You need to have the right sort of human capital. And that's true. There is that aspect to it. But it's also a social problem. It's a problem of trust. And it's a problem of the values of bureaucracy endogenously determined, developing in a given context. So for that reason, the examples that I think are most telling that we provide in the book are places, for example, like Lagos in Nigeria, Mm -hmm. where starting from a situation of complete breakdown where everybody thought Lagos was the symbol of anarchy, you start developing a more functional city. And how do you do that? I think the answer is not just an engineering solution. It's not that somebody comes in with the right sort of blueprints for setting up a state. It's not somebody coming in with the overwhelming force and imposing it. But it's some people seeing where the big fault lines are and go after them while at the same time increasing the trust of the citizens that the state is going to try to do some of these things. So making themselves accountable, making themselves subject to the voice and control of the citizens at the same time. So you see that with Tinubu and his deputy and later follower, Fashola, you know, these uh, local politicians, at the same time, they're trying to increase the capacity of the municipal government and increasing the control that the citizens have over themselves. Right. And in fact, there was also a couple of other examples you lay out. You mentioned human capital, where there were these onerous exams that were basically eliminating vast amounts of people to access the civil service, but also where civil service positions were provided for people on the basis of political favors or what have you. And so you're seeing the negotiating away of the civil society. It's a very important thing. Almost every state structure, you know, at some point had some amount of nepotism and patron-client relations in it. And its elimination is important for both of the aspects that we talked about. First of all, you get better people into it, but also through that process, you're increasing the accountability and the trust that people have in those. Right. I want to shift gears a little bit to what I found was one that really uh, intrigued me. Probably some people say for obvious reasons, but your case study of the United States. And specifically, you talk about how the nature of the Constitution, because it shackled the federal government, created this need for constant partnership or engagement between the public and the private sectors. Would you mind unpacking that concept a little bit? Because it's really fascinating because you take that idea and apply it writ large 
to the history of service delivery in the context of the United States, which I thought was fascinating. I'd love if you could discuss that. Thanks for asking that. You know, at some level, let me say, that chapter was by far the hardest chapter. Really? (laughs) Yeah, by far. And I think we've learned a lot from writing it. And But, you know, U.S. is a very complex case. Mm -hmm. It's partly because it is objectively complex, but it's partly because there are so many different narratives about the U.S. But let's actually start from the end. You know, what's so surprising about the U.S. is that if you look at it today, it's a really curious combination of a very strong state. Look at the power of the U.S. military or the NSA. It's hugely powerful, high capacity, and really difficult to control at some level. But then on the other hand, you look at many things that any self-respecting state would do in Western Europe or Canada. You know, the U.S. government has a difficulty fighting poverty, providing social insurance, you know, effective law enforcement, controlling violence, you know, controlling its own agents. You know, those are just terribly, terribly difficult. You know, take a U.S. president. He is arguably the most powerful person in the world, but he doesn't really have a way of controlling his local police department. Right, right. <laughs> and our interpretation is that this is not an accident. It's part of the implications of the original design where the only way that centralizers such as you know Madison, Hamilton, Washington could commit to not to misbehave once they centralize power and therefore get the okay of a lot of different segments of society that were all mobilized and powerful after the War of Independence was that they committed to tying the hands of this nascent Leviathan. Mm -hmm. And in particular, they tied its hands in a number of important directions. Some of them were very critical, like the Bill of Rights, but some of them were also somewhat of a Faustian bargain that they had to say, we're not going to interfere with a lot of local businesses at the state level, especially in the South where, you know, slavery and the distributional conflicts uh, brought about by slavery were foremost in the minds of the most powerful people at the time. So that created a very strange mix of a, a state with certain powers, but then tied, shackled in very important respects. And it really deeply shaped the way in which the U.S. federal state evolved over time. It had to, at every stage, come up with various different compromises in order to stay within the framework that was created for it under the Constitution. For example, it couldn't tax and invest in infrastructure, so it had to come up with these public-private partnerships mm-hmm. in order to get railways done, in order to get the postal service going, in order to even have the U.S. judiciary spread over this vast land. And oftentimes, that meant that some of the roles of the state, especially in terms of protecting its weakest citizens and fighting poverty in various different parts of the country, really fell by the wayside. It's really one of the fascinating points you also referenced was how we had a Justice Department that was basically looking to create a national police force but didn't have a national police force. But, you know, and then you end up with, on the one hand, it's very weak and it's very late, 
But on the other hand, a lot of it happens away from the prying eyes of society because you have to find fudges, and many of these fudges are just not so transparent. So at the end, that's the compromise that allows somebody like J. Edgar Hoover to form a uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation that was very difficult to control by even Congress because a lot of it was away from what it was supposed to be. Really, again, that was one of the more interesting parts of the book as I was reading through it. I want to stay with the example of the U.S. and again, this hybrid that's defined the American experience. And I want to bring it now to the context of the Sustainable Development Goals. As you know, these 17 various goals that both nations individually and as part of a global community are looking to, as well as the private sector, are looking to achieve by 2030. And again, I mean, ambitious, it's not even the proper adjective, zero hunger, affordable and clean energy, Mm -hmm. gender equity. And the reason I flag this is because it's not just that these goals are to be met, but it's the idea that the goals in sustainable development will touch every part of the world, including, again, the least developed countries. But bringing back to the United States, I mean, when we talk about the SDGs, we're talking about goals that are defined by a tremendous need for innovation and a tremendous need of scale. So my question is, is it conceivable that this hybrid of the public-private could actually serve to be beneficial in the context of sustainable development when you're talking about, again, looking to achieve broad-based development, doing it at broad scale, but also needing tremendous amounts of innovation in order to achieve those goals? Well, you know, look, I think the sustainable development goals are an aspiration, and as aspirations, they are a symbol of what we want to achieve. And Mm -hmm. I think in that way, they're very, very important. And then as you pointed out, you know, I think in some sense, they're also not fully realistic. But as symbols, perhaps, that's secondary. And then that immediately brings compromise. You know, you have to make compromises. And if the public-private partnerships are viewed as in that light, they're part of what we might have to work with. I think what I don't completely agree with, as you may sort of read in between the lines, is that public-private partnerships are inherently superior. I think it will depend on what you're trying to achieve with public-private partnerships and what the alternatives are. So, you know, in the U.S. context, the public-private partnerships have been better than the alternative of doing nothing, and that was the only solution. But a different political equilibrium would have enabled the government to do in a shackled way, as we kind of make as the central notion of the narrow corridor, in a shackled way, but taking some of those responsibilities itself while still, you know, remaining shackled would might have been better, certainly for laying the infrastructure or the judicial functions of the government, that might have been a better way. And certainly for poverty uh, reduction and fighting against poverty, that might have been a better way. So I think depend on the different contexts in which you're trying to do this. And then, you know, coming back to the same point that I made a second ago, you know, because these issues are not just engineering problems, I think the UN's role and other international organizations' role is important, but it's not in itself definitive. You know, you really need to have the local participation and local society's mobilization as important landmarks. The UN would agree in general, and UNCDF would agree in particular. Again, as we see it, there is no sustainable development without local capacity. You can't get there, and that's core to our mission. We're down the last couple of questions, and so 
what I've done with our previous episodes is for the penultimate question, I take a different gear and I ask my guests, and again, these have all been people that work within UNCDF, to describe just the professional journey that brought them to UNCDF. I'd love to ask you if you wouldn't mind just sharing with us just your professional journey that brought you to where you are today. I actually got into social science and economics in particular because I was interested in the issues that form the basis of my research with Jim uh, Robinson and Why Nations Fail and the Narrow Corridor. You know, coming of age in Turkey in the early 1980s when we had a troublesome military period and troublesome economy, I couldn't but wonder what the alternative was. Can you have a more democratic government and would that be better for the economy and those linkages? And that's what I wanted to study. And I thought economics would be the study of that. I soon realized economists didn't really focus on such questions, but still it was fascinating. And then I tried to sort of find ways of bringing economics and this sort of political aspects of institutions, governance, and regimes together. And that's what a lot of the work that Jim and I have done. Thank you for all of those efforts, and thank you for your answer. Um, So down to the last question, and I want to use this last question to introduce another really important concept in this book, and that's the cage of norms. And I'd love to have you unpack it, but as I read it, these are a set of norms or beliefs in behavior. They could be cultural, they could be communal, they could be religious, that basically, at least as we've seen, can constrict behavior among a community, irrespective of whatever objective facts exist that should be constraining such behavior. And I'd love for you to discuss that, but again, I want to bring this again in the concept of the SDGs, because... The way I see the SDGs, as I was reading your book, you could see it as a way to basically take commerce and economic relations and take it away from a cage of norms that was focusing overwhelmingly on growth over, say, income inequality or environmental damage or things of that nature. And you don't necessarily have to agree, but I'd love for you to, again, unpack the cage of norms. But then if we were to look at the SDGs, as a way of liberating local, national, and global economies from a pre-existing cage of norms, then what's the best way that we can ensure its success? I think it's actually an interesting link to uh, SDGs. I'll touch up on that. You know, the cage of norms relates to where we started from, from Hobbes' discussion. You know, Hobbes underestimated the ability of societies without states to control violence, to organize economic and social events, and and just maintain order. Actually, most of them are not violent, endlessly fighting at each other, fight of every man against everyone, as Hobbes put it, but they are rather predictable patterns of behavior. And how do they achieve that? They have very strict norms about how disputes are resolved, what behaviors are accepted and not accepted. But then those norms themselves become a big barrier to both social and economic liberty. Social liberty because they were very strict about what can be done and what cannot be done. Think of Pashtun norms in Afghanistan, but also economic activities because one way of preventing disputes is actually restricting a lot of different aspects of economic transactions and economic relations. And you see that in many of the small-scale societies, markets are so restricted because people think markets are going to lead to economic and then political inequality, and they're going to lead to status differences and lots of misbehavior. 
so then when you actually start thinking about modern technologies, modern aspirations that we have in terms of equality of opportunity, equality of people, autonomy, and use of technology, all of these things really require these norms to be to some extent to be loosened. And the problem there is that my previous emphasis will immediately reveal to you that we also think you have to build on existing norms because if you say I'm going to turn my back into my by back to all existing norms of behavior, then you're really not mobilizing society and you know you just are one other example of top down imposition. Then there's this other delicate dance, which is that you are at the same time mobilizing and uh, building on society's aspirations, which are, of course, uh, tightly connected to its norms, but at the same time, you're also trying to relax the most restrictive aspects of these norms. And it's remarkable things that that has happened many times in history, but it is always a difficult process. And today, I think it is one of the aspects of development, you know, in every corner of the world. It's not just Africa, it's not just Latin America, it's not just Asia, in every part of the world. You have to have this process of norms changing and adapting, but not in a, in a top-down way. And I think that is one of the challenges that international development has to confront. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to talk to you more about this, but we're at the end of our time, but ending on quite a thoughtful note. But thank you so, so very much for your time, uh, Professor. My it, pleasure. Thank you for talking to this, me. It was really fantastic. Just one more time, the book is The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty. Daron, thank you so much. Professor Asamoglu and James A. Robinson, these are two of the most important thought leaders that we've had in the public thought leadership space for a long time, and and The Narrow Corridor is, is a really important contribution, and we're so pleased to have you on. Capital Musings is the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. It is a product of the Partnerships Policy and Communications Unit of UNCDF. Fernando Zaraus and Carlos Macias are our producers. Thank you very much, and we'll talk soon.